You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Good morning. I'm really glad to be with you folks at Redeeming Grace Church in this beautiful part of the world. I confess that my only time in Rapid City before this weekend was going through on a Badlands, Black Hills, Rushmore, Devil's Tower trip a few years back. But it's a beautiful place that you folks have landed in. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about me as we get going. Just a little bit. I'm from a a, a religious home in northwestern Wisconsin. My wife is actually from the Holy Land, which of course means near Green Bay. (laughs) Thank you for a few giggles at least. So we were both radically converted to Christ at about age 20. We helped to start a church. Uh, early in our life together, uh, after seminary, I thought I was going to be a church planter, and I was like one of the world's worst church planters. So God still liked me, and He gave me a, a really good time leading a parachurch ministry for a while. Then I had a long pastorate in the Milwaukee area, and then 20 years ago, we began an adventure doing, it ended up being seven interim pastorates, I called them redevelopment transitional pastorates because you're using the time in a church between normal pastors to help a church that is troubled to get happy and healthy and holy again. And we did that seven times. We sold our house. We gave away lots of stuff, hit the road seven times over 15 years in three different states with 10 moves. And then we were tired. But seriously, along the way, God let me write some books and start a website and train to be a consultant. And now the last five years, I've been able to be a church health consultant, which really means I'm a missionary on mission to help churches thrive. God is using everything I've been through, everything I've learned in what I'm doing today. I write, I preach, I coach pastors, coach church boards, I do church assessments and mediations and train church boards and help with strategic planning. It's all a real privilege. I just thank God I get get to do this. So the picture, I should say, that's Donna and myself, you can guess, on the end, and that's our son Jesse, who doesn't look like me, but he really is my son, and wife Jackie and sons Ari and Elijah, and they live in the United Arab Emirates on the other side of the world. Our son works at an airport for U.S. Customs and Border Protection, trying to keep bad people and bad things from coming to the U.S. at that end instead of at this end, and no, we don't see them as much as we'd like to, but... We love them. So here's what I'll be doing as your guest for three weeks. I'll be teaching and preaching for four Sundays, three after today. And then during the week, I'll be doing, during the weeks, I'll be doing lots of listening. And I want to listen to you. I mean, if you attend this church at all, I want to hear from you. I have sign-up sheets back there on the table where you can sign up for a 55-minute segment on this coming Saturday or the following Saturday. Just go ahead 
and sign up, but I can meet with you during the week, breakfast, coffee, lunch, dinner, at your house, at a restaurant, uh, at the ministry center, whatever it takes, I, I want to hear from you, want to hear your stories, and it'll all be anonymous, you won't get in trouble for anything you say, I promise, and then when I'm not listening to you, I'll be walking around and, and praying. So let, I believe next Sunday, I'll share a few tentative thoughts with you about how I see the church, and then on the 10th, I'll be presenting a report with some recommendations. Back on that table, I have some books. I have a sign-up sheet if you'd like to get my weekly blog, our monthly newsletter. The red book is for Christians in troubled churches. If you know anybody like that, buy the book and, and send it to them. The blue book is called A Really Great Church, and that's what I want to emphasize backwards and forwards. This church can be a really great church because we have a really great God. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And if you're not yet an all-in follower of Jesus, um, I want to say, you know, you've walked into something maybe, maybe seems slightly weird to you, but it is wonderful to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it is wonderful to be a part of a group of followers of Jesus. But every group of human beings has issues, has challenges with getting along, and that includes churches. It's just the way it is. New churches typically have growing pains. As I said to the class earlier, uh, no offense, but as a church, you're a three-year-old. And we don't expect really wondrous maturity out of three-year-olds, do we? We expect a lot of why, 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 and that's what we get. So I want to rewind with you for just a minute to the first days and months after I asked Jesus to be my Savior. I instantly just loved the Bible. I don't know if that happened to you, but I loved the Bible. And I also found that I had a strange attraction affection for Christians, and I mean the weird ones, you know, I mean the, 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 the extreme ones, the, one who, the ones who talk and sing about Jesus all the time, okay? All of a sudden, I loved these people, and whenever I met one, I just felt this kinship, and when they would invite me to a church, I felt this wonderful kinship just walking in the door. Over time, I learned what God had done in me and what God had given me. Among other things, God had given me the gift of unity, the gift of unity with millions of other believers in Jesus all over the world. So the title of this series of sermons is The Joy of Unity, but today we're going to zero in on unity as a gift. If you're not already there, I'm actually going to, if you can handle this, I'm going to ask you to turn to two passages in the, Bi <clears throat> in the Bible, Ephesians 4. If you would turn there, keep your place there. I don't know if you can do that with electronic Bibles, but we're, we're going to major on John 17, which we already heard read really well once. So Ephesians 4 and John 
17. And if you're using an electronic Bible and you can choose translations, I'm using the New International Version, the NIV. And in the bulletin, you can take some notes if you'd like to as we go. So the first thing I want to say, I have four profound truths for you about the gift of unity. And the first one is that it's a heaven-sent gift. It is a heaven-sent gift. John 17 is where we begin, and it's one of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible. Because in this chapter, Jesus is praying for us. Now, some of you might be kind of moved by the fact that maybe you found out your, your grandmother, your grandfather was praying for you even before you were born. Yeah, Jesus was praying for us 2,000 years ago, for us. So this is John 17. It's the night of Jesus' last Jewish Passover when He turned the Passover into what we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. Uh, Judas has already taken off, and then in John 14 to 17, we have what the church calls the upper room discourse, which means they were in the upper room, and Jesus kind of preached this sermon. He gave this talk, and at the end of this sermon, he prays this incredible prayer. Preachers today, they teach a sermon, and then they pray a prayer. He didn't lead his disciples in this prayer because they could never have prayed this, But he prayed it, it's astonishing, and he just let them listen in. And then God helped John to write it down. It's so full of wondrous truths that pastors spend months just teaching about the prayer. What I want to point out, among other amazing, mind-blowing requests in this prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, and he asks that all of his followers for all time will be made one by God the Father. He asked it in verse 11. He asked it again in verse 21. He asked it again in verse 22. He asked it the fourth time in verse 23. Four times. Will you look at them with me? Verse 11. Verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, meaning the 12 disciples who were with him, are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Slide down to 21, verse 21. It's right in the middle of a sentence, so I better read 20. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then the next verse, I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. And finally in 23, I and them and you and me may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you think maybe Jesus cared about our unity? <laughs> I think he did. Now to be honest, I can't blame the skeptic. 
who looks at the church for 2,000 years and says, it looks like your Jesus didn't get his prayer answered. Because we sure haven't looked very united, have we? I mean, let's face it. But if we look at the rest of the New Testament, combined with our own experience, there is no question that Jesus really did get His prayer answered. When the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, He regenerated, did the new birth thing on the followers of Jesus and turned them into what we call the church universal, church with a capital C, the body of Christ. And so now Christ is physically in heaven and spiritually He's here in us. We're here physically and spiritually with, we're with Him in heaven. So we are one with God the Father, just as He prayed. We are one with God the Son. We are one with the Holy Spirit. And that means we are one with each other. And God did it so it didn't get messed up. You get it? So that means if you came in here today... And of course, I don't know who's who here yet, but if you came in here as a non-Christian, even a hater of Christians, you just thought you were going to enjoy the museum and you, st- you found yourself in this church service thing, now, what is this? But you've somehow, through the songs, the readings, you've believed in Jesus, you're already a new believer, a new person, baptized into the body of Christ, born into the family of God, legally adopted into the family of God. This heaven-sent gift of unity is already yours. Second profound truth about this gift of unity. It's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift. And I'm going to illustrate this from life actually, rather than Scripture. So I mentioned my new birth and loving Christians and loving wanted to be with groups of Christians and sensing this this amazing connection with them. I want to give you a tad more background about me. So I had been a a hippie college student. I was a war-protesting, protest-song-singing pacifist. Very, very idealistic. I was deeply concerned about how we treat each other as human beings. I really was. There were a lot of things wrong with me, but I was deeply concerned about how we treat each other. Philosophers call it man's inhumanity to man. Man's inhumanity to man. Uh, JFK had been shot on my 11th birthday, and it, it it changed me. Vietnam War was raging through my high school years. And I knew I was going to face that. So I went off to college. I thought, I think I'll be a social psychologist, which really has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Social psychologist. But I thought, maybe we can figure out why we do all these awful things to each other. And I wasn't a rock and roll guy, so I couldn't write the perfect rock song like Bill and Ted, if you know Bill and Ted, that would usher in world peace. So you do know Bill and Ted, okay, all right. So we were peaceniks, and we talked about love, but the behavior of my college friends was not very loving, and it was deeply disappointing to me. And when I became a Christian and started experiencing the oneness, I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. 
whole new thing. Loved it. Why do we want this connection with other people so much? Well, very simply, we were made in the image of a relational, loving God. From eternity, the three persons of the triune God were enjoying each other, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We were made in His image, and we just love feeling connected to God and to other people, even to animals to a certain extent. Uh, God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for the man to be alone. That is not going to work. Our hearts long for God. They long for intimacy with each other. We need other people almost as much as we need food, air, water. So solitary confinement has been used as a punishment for a long, long time. So just recently, we're a little slow, but just recently my wife and I discovered the TV show Alone on the History Channel. Any of you ever seen any of Alone? Okay, not very many of you. Here's the advertisement, okay? So we got, we got hooked on it, but it's been on about 10 seasons. And what they do is they take most, most years, it's 10 mostly guys, some gals, 10 people, survivalists. They drop them off in the middle of the woods and they have to utterly survive on their own. And the contest is who can stand it the longest, and the winner gets a half a million dollars, okay? And we've seen, and they are remarkable people. Don't try this at home. They are amazing, amazing people. And we've seen again and again how some of these amazing people conquer all their issues and challenges. They figure out how to get food, and they build a shelter, and they're doing great, and they can't stand the alone thing. And they make some really eloquent speeches about how I need people. I need my wife. I miss my kids. You know, and they push the button, they tap out, and they go home. They can't stand to be alone. If you're a Christian, this gift of unity with all of the other believers it is a wonderful thing. We, call, we usually call it fellowship, fellowship. It's a fringe benefit of being a Christian. Here's the third profound truth about the gift of unity. Here we go. It's an important gift. It's an important gift. It's not just an important gift because you need it, which you do. It's important for another reason, which we've kind of already seen but I want you to see it really, really well. So would you look back at verse 20 with me, John 17, 20? Again, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's pretty simple. People who are not believers in Jesus are supposed to look at the followers of Jesus and be amazed by their unity. 
But how do you see this unity? I mean, it's not like people can look into our souls and see the connection. Here's what they can see. Here's how they can see the unity, okay? Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples not because you have church buildings or wear crosses or have fish on your bumper stickers and i'm not picking on you if you have crosses or fish okay that all men will know, this by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another so they see our unity when they see our love in action, and it blows their minds. It blows their minds. So I got to college. I just turned 18. The night I, first night I was there, I heard about how I could know God personally through Jesus. It blew, it, that blew my mind. Uh, I knew I didn't want to bow my knees to Jesus Christ because I knew He was even holier than my mother. You had to know her. I watched these people. I wasn't one of them, but I watched them. They invited me to things. I called them Jesus freaks. Some of them looked like freaks. Um, I envied their joy. I envied their hope. I envied, envied their unity thing that I could see. I, I knew that they had something that I didn't have. I was kind of on the outside looking in, and I wanted that. I wanted it. I wanted it. Look at what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if we're making it work, if we're doing it right, people who don't know Jesus look at us and our love, which displays our unity, is a powerful apologetic, is the fancy term. It's a powerful proof that Jesus Christ really is who we said He is. He really came from heaven, and He came with love. He's real, and He is love, and people see that. They learn that theological truth when they look at a church that is functioning right. And think about the body thing again. If, if a church is the body of Christ in a particular community, it's the way Jesus is making Himself physically, visibly known to that community. So people looking at a church that's functioning right, they see Jesus and they see Him accurately. People look at a church that's functioning badly, where people aren't loving each other. They see a caricature of Jesus. They see an ugly Jesus. Really? And that means, that means our unity is a theological statement and our disunity is heresy. You get it? You could say it's blasphemy to make it even worse. Whoa. It's really serious. So our fourth profound truth about the gift of unity, and this won't surprise you, it's a fragile gift. It's a fragile gift. Here's where we turn to Ephesians 4, if you can still do that. 
We're not going to dig into this in great depth, but if you can easily turn to Ephesians 4, do it. So this seems ironic. I know it. It seems confusing. I know it. Because I'm saying we have this unity as believers, which is absolutely permanent, guaranteed, forever. God did it. He didn't let us mess it up. Okay, got that? Right? And then on the other hand, well, look at Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. The Apostle Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble. And NIV says gentle, the word meek would have been much better. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, and then make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I thought we couldn't lose it. Here he says, you got to keep it. So your actual spiritual, heaven-sent, miraculous, living, legal unity with other believers can't be lost. It's unshakable. It's unbreakable. And yet your functional, practical, day-to-day, enjoyable unity is as fragile as a raw egg. Get the picture? Now, that seems strange, but maybe it's not so strange. I mean, think about it. We're saying it's a gift, but you have to maintain it. So back when we were young and really poor, Donna and I were given cars three different times, three different times. But we had to maintain them. (laughs) Nobody took care of that. A few years ago, we were given a great big old John Deere snow thrower, really handy where we live, okay? But we have to maintain it. Think about your family for a minute. You're born into a human family, and once you're born into that family, your father is your father forever, your mother is your mother forever, your siblings are your siblings forever, right? Can't do anything about that. Maybe, you've, maybe you'd like to, but you can't. You're stuck. That's the way it is, okay? But to, ma- to enjoy those relationships, we have to maintain them. It takes some effort, right? Without any effort, it just falls apart and you go your separate ways. You go down to the courthouse and get married, and it can really it's really a pretty simple thing, more so in some places than others, but it's not really a big deal. And you're going to be legally married, you know, even 30 years beyond which you've even seen each other because you've moved to different continents. Unless you get divorced, you're still married. You're stuck with each other. But to enjoy it, you've got to work at it right? Takes, takes work. And so it is with our unity. It is so important that Paul says, make every effort. He doesn't mean that that's all you care about in life. He didn't mean it that way. But he means, don't skip this. It's essential. Make it a priority. Pull out all the stops. Do everything you can. Jesus had said, you know, if you're going to worship and you remember that a Christian brother has something against you, forget the worship. Go to your brother. 
do what you can to make that relationship right, and then come back and worship. It's hard because of this matter of our own sin. It's also hard because we have an enemy who absolutely hates our unity because of the theological statement that our unity makes because of the power of our unity. And so we have this statement from Peter. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that doesn't just mean you as an individual. It means churches. He's prowling around Rapid City looking for churches to devour. And in most cases, the evil one can't get us to speak heretical words. But in a lot of cases, he can get us to live heretical lives by forgetting about this unity thing. And there are Christians and even pastors who think it doesn't matter. I mean, if our church is growing, who cares, you know? Who cares? More people this Sunday than last Sunday. Scripture says it really, really matters. It's not optional. Having great coffee is optional. Having a great band is optional. Having a great preacher is optional. Having unity is not optional. So here's what I'm saying. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And over the next, in the next three classes, the next three sermons, I'll be fleshing out what that looks like. How do you do that? How do you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? Here's some questions I want to ask you to pray about on your own in the next couple minutes. Would you pray these? Have I received the gift of unity by receiving the Savior? If you haven't, do it now. Am I enjoying the gift of unity, fellowship with other believers? Am I making every effort to guard the unity of my church? Father, is there something you want me to do? Would you pray that stuff, those requests, right now in the next couple minutes? And then I'll lead us. And then we'll sing, and the band can probably sneak back up here now if they want to. Father God, we thank you for making us in your image. And giving us this mysterious desire and need that we have for fellowship with you, for fellowship with even the animal kingdom, and for fellowship with each other, for unity, for intimacy with each other. You made us like you. And you know how much we struggle with it because we're foolish and we're sinful. But, Father, we pray that the folks at Redeeming Grace would 
understand at a deep, deep level that this is something to go after. It's something to pursue. Father, we just read Jesus saying he gave us his glory. I'm not sure what that means, but I know he means that he gave us the resources in your spirit and in your word to have the kind of unity that brings you great glory, that helps bring people to you, and brings great joy to us. We pray that you would guide and work in Redeeming Grace Church and give them great, enjoyable unity for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.